Good morning and welcome to Biroki Baptist Church's weekly service. It's great to have you with us, whether you're, um, whether you're a regular at our services or whether you've just come across us over the internet somewhere. It's brilliant to welcome you and have you worshipping and exploring the word of God with us this morning. My name's Tom and I'm part of the ministry team here at the church. And to begin this service, I'd like to pray for us and then we're going to read from God's word and uh, take a look at the passage that we're going to be learning about this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather together, albeit virtually, and to share together in the the, the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that your word brings. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for this morning. And despite all the, um, the, the anxiety and the difficulties in the world around us at this time, Lord, we give thanks that when we come together to worship you, we come into the presence of a God who is unchanging. A God who is the same yesterday and today and will be forever. So, Father, we, we, we cling to that and we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you will touch us this morning as we as we delve into your word. You will you will open our hearts, open our eyes and open our minds and bring us closer to you through that process. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at a passage from Mark's gospel. So if you've got a Bible with you. Or if you've got a device where you've got a Bible on there, then please turn to Mark chapter 8. And we're starting at verse 14. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf, which they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? I don't know about you, but one of my pet hates is forgetting things. Um, I always have this morbid fear going on holiday that I've forgotten something. We leave the house and I've, I've checked and rechecked that we've got everything, but I always drive away thinking, what have I forgotten? Maybe this was born into me um, when I was very young. A family that I used to know um, went on holiday once and they got halfway around the M25 on their way to Portsmouth and the father suddenly looked out the window and said, I wish we brought the dining table with us. And the mum said, why on earth do you say that? And he said, I left the ferry tickets on them. Not a good start to a holiday. Not the sort of thing you want to be forgetting. Or there was a time when I was working up in a city and um, at about eight o'clock one Tuesday night, I got a phone call from from my boss saying, Tom, um, can you be at Gatwick Airport at half past four tomorrow morning? I said, yeah, sure. Why? What's happened? He explained that he'd been out with um, with a colleague of his um, the night before. And after a few drinks, they'd got a, uh, played a few jokes on each other, one of which was my boss taking um, his colleague's passport. 
and my boss hid his passport. But the next day he couldn't remember where he'd hid it. And so suddenly I found myself booked onto a business trip for four days in, in Spain, starting in Barcelona, then travelling down to Madrid. It was hot and sunny weather. I went to a few meetings. I had a lovely time, um, a lovely little holiday in Spain at the expense of the company. And uh, my colleague never found his passport and my boss never remembered where he'd hidden it. There was another time when I was at a cross-country race one winter when I was a teenager and um, me and a couple of other guys were warming up. We went through our normal routine, went for a jog, and it was, it was a bit cold, so um, we kept our tracksuits on right up until the last minute when the starter suddenly gave the two-minute warning, two minutes till the start of the race. And that was the point at which we started taking our tracksuits off. So I took my top off, got the trousers off, stood there in my kit waiting to start. My, uh, one of the guys I knew who I'd been warming up with took his top off, took his trousers down and then suddenly realised, as did the rest of the world, that he'd forgotten to put his running shorts on that morning. So he had to put his trousers back up and run the race in his tracksuit bottoms. None of these are good things to forget. And in this passage in Mark chapter 8, we see the disciples having forgotten to bring something. A pretty basic thing. They're in the boat with Jesus. They're crossing over from one side of a lake to the other, and they suddenly realise, hang on a second, who was supposed to bring the buffet? Whose job was it to provide lunch today? Where's the bread? Now, the disciples and Jesus, that was a group of 13, and they look around and they realise no one's brought the bread. They've only got one loaf between them. Now, of course, some of you will be thinking, ah, Jesus called himself the bread of life. When Mark says there's one loaf in the boat, he's, he's actually talking about Jesus being the bread of life. I think you're being a bit too clever. They had one loaf of bread between them. 13 people, one loaf. It's not a lot. And so, understandably, the disciples begin to discuss whose job it was to bring the bread. How is it that we've got into the boat and we've only got the one loaf of bread between 13 of us? Someone has screwed up. And I imagine a fairly robust debate ensued and they started trying to work out whose job it was to bring the bread. And Jesus listens. Jesus listens to the disciples having this conversation, this debate, possibly even this argument where there may have been different accusations. Well, hang on a second, I brought it yesterday. It wasn't my turn, was it? It was one of you lot. Well, hang on a second, we thought there was leftovers from yesterday. There was a load left over when he performed that miracle. Have we gone through that already? Surely not. Who, who was supposed to bring it? And Jesus turns around to them and comes out with this very odd statement. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. I wonder what Jesus was thinking. You see, if we go back a little bit to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He went and met with John the Baptist by the banks of the River Jordan. And he was taken down and he was baptised and he came back out and the spirit of God appeared like a dove. And a voice said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And that was the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He then went off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. We often gloss over that 
because there was another significant event that happened when Jesus was in, the, was in the wilderness. And that was that he was tempted by Satan. Satan appears to him and and tells Jesus to turn that stone into a loaf of bread. Jesus would have been desperate for food. He was fully God, yes, but he was fully man as well. A 40 day fast that would kill half of us. It certainly has a significant psychological and physiological impact upon us. A 40 day fast. We can so often gloss over that that little detail in Jesus's life. But that was significant. Jesus was no stranger to hunger, to starvation. And so when Jesus hears his disciples having this argument in the back of the boat about only having one loaf of bread between 13 of them, to get them through this one day, this journey across the lake. He turns around and he gets a bit snappy. Be careful, he says. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now we have to work a little bit hard to work out what he meant by this slightly odd statement. You see, yeast is the ingredient that makes bread rise. Yeast is is tiny. It only takes a tiny amount of yeast to make a full loaf rise. Traditionally, the Passover bread that the Jews used to eat was unleavened bread, unyeasted bread. It was flat bread. It didn't rise. And this reminded the Jews of um, the night when the Passover instructions were given. And they were told, don't put yeast in your bread. You won't have time to let it prove, to let it rise. You won't have time for that process. You've just got to not put the yeast in. Just cook it as it is, a flat bread, and take that, because that is all you've got time to make. But some people say that the yeast in the bread represents sin. In the same way that Yeast can't be removed from bread once it's in there. Its its impact can't be reversed. You can't get a straw and suck out all the air bubbles that it's put in there to um, to to um, to cause the bread to rise. You just can't reverse the impact of yeast. In the same way, each and every one of us has sin inside us, and there's no way that we can ourselves reverse the impact of sin. Sin changes us, and we cannot reverse that change. There is no natural process. We need the supernatural in order to do that. The supernatural being the forgiveness and the power of Jesus. Other people say that the yeast that Jesus refers to in this passage refers to the Pharisees. The Pharisees of the time, these these people who were very, very well versed in, in the Jewish law, the holy book, the scriptures who would take pride and be quite puffed up in pride and righteousness at preaching to the rest of the world and pointing out everybody else's faults whilst turning a blind eye to their own. These people who turned the Jewish faith from a faith of love that God intended to a faith of of legalism. One other theory is that the yeast represents rebellion. And Jesus is saying the yeast of Herod, the yeast of the Pharisees, is what is eventually going to cause people to rise up against me. So it's an interesting statement that Jesus comes out with and he warns his disciples, watch out for this yeast. But at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what he was talking about. We can theorise and we can come up with all these ideas, but we don't actually know for sure. 
What we do know is that Jesus, by saying, watch out, be careful, he's telling his disciples to remember the bigger picture. He's saying, don't get distracted. Look what's happened. I've just performed a miracle. I've performed healings. I've I've fed the 5,000. I've done all these things. I've fed the 4,000. I've gone into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I've resisted Satan himself tempting me. I've performed wonders. People come to see me. And yet, and yet, despite all that, the second that you suddenly feel that you don't know where your next meal's coming from, you take your eyes off the bigger picture and instead you focus on your stomach. You think about you. Don't get distracted Jesus is saying, from the bigger picture, focus, focus on me, focus on Jesus. And that's a message for us today as well, because you see, we are still just as prone to distractions, to things that take our eyes away from Jesus and onto something else as the disciples were. An example of this came a few years ago. There's a story which I'll share. Um, I've changed the the venue, I've changed the names, I've changed everything, so it's completely unrecognisable. But I went to a party, and um, I went there with a friend of mine who, um, let's call him Frank, and Frank is not a Christian. In fact, Frank is quite cynical about church. But I've been working quite hard, had some good conversations with Frank, and and he's beginning to come round to the idea and understand some of the... um, uh, some of the um, ideas that I've been sharing with him about why, what motivates me to have a Christian faith, why I'm a Christian. And it's fair to say Frank was on a journey. At the party, we met Dave and his wife. And Dave is a Christian. And Dave likes to talk about his faith quite a lot. He's, he's very into his church and um, he, he almost goes a bit too far sometimes in, in trying, to, trying to get the name of Jesus into every conversation. And sometimes I admire him, sometimes it makes me cringe a little bit because he's a little bit too um, in your face, happy clappy. But fair enough, each to their own. Dave met Frank, but throughout the conversation, when I tried to introduce the two of them, Dave was a bit distracted And I couldn't quite work out why until I looked out the window and I saw he was looking at the car park. It was pouring with rain. And he shared with me the fact that he had got to the party a little bit late and didn't manage to get a parking space. He had to park up the road and he got quite wet on the walk down. And so he was looking out the window to see if a parking space would come up. While this was going on, Someone took a phone call, another guest, and it turned out that an elderly relative of the host of the party um, couldn't get to the party. So this person said, right, I'll um, I'll go and pick them up. Dave watched as they went down the stairs, out the door, into the car park, got into their car that was parked quite close to the entrance and drove to pick this elderly relative up. Before you could say no, Dave goes down the stairs, runs up the road, gets to his car, drives it back to the venue and takes that parking space and comes back into the venue saying, got myself a space. Ten minutes later, the elderly relative with their driver turns up, having had to walk a quarter of a mile down the road, soaked to the skin, looking terrible. 
Frank looked at me and said, and that's one of your Christian mates, is it? Pointing at Dave, who had taken the parking space. And to this day, to this day, whenever I see Frank and I bring up church, he brings up that story and reminds me of the lack of Christian character that he perceived. You see, Dave was distracted from his faith by by his desire to get a better parking space. And although that might seem like a very, very trivial story to share, and you might think, oh, come on, that's, that's not one of your better stories, Tom. I get that. But actually, do you know, it's not meant to be. It's a serious point because we all have these failings, these moments where we take our eye off the ball, where we take our eye off Jesus because some sort of selfish desire takes over and suddenly we find ourselves pursuing that rather than thinking of others, rather than loving our neighbour, rather than doing what is right by God. The passage goes on. There's a discussion amongst the disciples as they're trying to work out what Jesus was talking about. And eventually they come, they come to the discussion that Jesus is annoyed because they haven't got any bread. (laughs) Now, we never know whether they were right or not to come to that conclusion. As I've said, Jesus was no stranger to starvation. Maybe he was thinking, oh, no, I don't want to go through all that again. But I suspect that the disciples didn't quite get to the right point. Jesus was aware of their discussion. He asks, why are you talking about not having any bread? Do you still not see or understand Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to see? Fail to hear? (laughs) Now, of course, Jesus had already healed lots of people. They had seen him walk up to the deaf, touching their ears and restoring hearing. They'd seen him healing deaf people. They'd seen him healing blind people. In fact, just after this comes another instance of Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida. Jesus says, you've got eyes to see. Look, you've got ears to hear. See, you've got ears to hear. So hear. You see, all around us, if we look hard enough. We see God. We see God in answered prayers. We see God in in healings, especially at the moment. We see God working around us in the world. If we listen, if we pause and step back and listen, we hear a spiritual prompting. So many times I've heard people saying, I don't know why I did what I did, but it just felt right. And that's because they've responded to a spiritual prompting. They've, they've gone out on a limb and trusted in God. Another word for that is discernment. They've prayed about something and then they've, they've read the scriptures and then they've just felt that they've discerned what God wants them to do. And that can be a difficult thing to do. That can be a frightening thing to do. When I went into ministry, it was a frightening thing to do, but it was the right thing for me to do because I just... I saw in the world around me many, many different signs pointing me in that direction. And I heard, I felt in my spirit. That's what God wanted me to do. 
Jesus goes on. Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they answered. Now, anybody with any spattering of theological knowledge will get very excited when they hear these numbers. They'll think, oh, 12, I know 12. 12, that's the number of disciples. That's, that's the number of, of, of tribes of Israel. 12, it's a biblical number. And then, of course, seven. Oh, my goodness, Pavlov's dog will be salivating everywhere. Seven, of course, seven Gentile nations. Well, that means that... <coughs> That means that um, the 12 tribes of Israel, there was a basket left for each tribe, a basket for each disciple. Jesus will feed, God will feed his people, the Jews. Um, the disciples will be looked after. We're all disciples, will be looked after. Or maybe the seven, the Gentiles, everybody in the world, there is going to be provision for. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a massive theological moment. And some commentators would agree with you. They get just as excited. But interestingly... The majority of commentators that I've read on this on this passage say we can read far too much into that. Jesus isn't making a, a massive theological point in in this moment. He's simply saying to the disciples. Out of a tiny, tiny amount of bread. Look how many people I fed and then look how much was left over. And you're sitting here. With me in the boat, arguing about the fact that between 13 of us, we've got one loaf. Seriously. Do you still not understand? He's saying stop focusing on the minutiae, the, the detail. And keep your heads focused on the bigger picture. The bigger picture, because I can, I can look after the detail. I need you focused on what I want you to do. We can all lose sight of the bigger picture. We can all allow ourselves to be to be distracted. And we can all find that every now and then when we come to the point where we reset our our spiritual compass, when we refocus ourselves on Jesus, we can really beat ourselves up about all those times that we've we've not focused on him. But you see, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Because we're no better or worse than the disciples. There are some bits of our faith that we understand well. There are many bits that we have very poor understanding. And there are some bits that we haven't even begun to understand yet. But we must always remember that faith should be something that brings us joy. Faith should be something that, that restores our soul, that nourishes us, that brings the best out of us. I've been reading a book by, by Philip Yancey recently. It's called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in this book, Yancey talks about two great Russian novelists, Leo Tolstoy, who wrote War and Peace, amongst other things, and um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote Crime and Punishment and many other works. Now, Tolstoy, he strove to follow the Sermon on the Mount literally, exactly and what he found was 
it just brought misery. In response to the story of Jesus talking to the rich young man, where Jesus says, go sell your possessions, give everything away. Jesus, um, Tolstoy took Jesus at his word. And so Tolstoy, who had a, a huge wealth, massive estates, loads and loads of people working for him. He decided that he would he would release all his servants, set them free. He'd give away the copyright to all his work. He would give away his, his property, his land. He took on peasant clothing and he went and worked the land among the peasants. He made his own shoes and he brought misery on his family. His wife was utterly, utterly gutted to see her husband giving everything away. It's a very public act. And Tolstoy did many public acts. One of them was, um, in fact, many, many times, apparently, Tolstoy took a, a very public vow of chastity. Um, something which made him something of a figure of fun when his wife became pregnant for the 16th time. He clearly wasn't very good at keeping that vow. His wife wrote in her diary, there is so little genuine warmth about him. His kindness does not come from his heart, but from his principles. You see, Leo Tolstoy was a deeply unhappy man. He died like a vagrant in a railroad station, forgotten, deserted, miserable. And the reason for that is because, according to one of his biographers, A.N. Wilson, Tolstoy suffered from a fundamental theological inability to understand the incarnation. His faith was a thing of law rather than a thing of grace, just like the Pharisees that Jesus spoke about. His faith was a scheme for human betterment rather than a vision of God penetrating a fallen world. There's something key, isn't there, that was missing from Tolstoy's faith. He was a very devout man, a very intelligent man, but he missed the point. Fyodor Dostoevsky was a different story. In his younger days, he was, he was a very successful writer and he used to squander vast amounts of money on drink and fine food and other luxuries and pleasures. <clears throat> he loved alcohol, he loved gambling. And eventually he got in with um, with a political group who were verging on treason. And the, the leader of Russia, Tsar Nicholas I, got wind of this and arrested Dostoevsky and his, his cronies. And he decided to teach them a lesson. So he set up this mock execution. They were blindfolded. They were made to wear white gowns. They were paraded out before a crowd in the square. And just as... Just as... The order, ready, aim, just before the word fire was shouted, the hooves of a horse could be heard galloping across the square. And a prearranged order, although Dostoevsky never knew this, a prearranged order was given to the executioner to stop the execution. The mercy of the Tsar had meant that they wouldn't be killed, they would just be sentenced to 10 years hard labour. But that experience of almost losing his life changed Dostoevsky. He stopped his, his wild habits and while he was in prison, he read the New Testament and he came out absolutely dedicated to Jesus. He said, if anyone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, I'd rather remain with Christ than with the truth. 
Dostoevsky lived a life of faith, but it was a joyful faith. It was a faith that in his writing, he made statements like, I do not know the answer to the problem of evil, but I do know love. And so Philip Yancey writes about these two characters, these two great novelists, these two great mind. And he says, from Leo Tolstoy, I learned the need to look inside to the kingdom of God that is in me. I saw how miserably I'd failed in the high ideals of the gospel. We all fail in the high ideals of the gospel. Not one of us can claim to have read the gospel and changed our lives to such an extent that we are exactly what God intended us to be. But, Yancey goes on, from Dostoevsky, I learned the full extent of grace. Not only is the kingdom of God within me, with its high ideals, which I can never achieve, but also dwelling within me is Jesus Christ. You see, when I read this passage, that last line, Jesus leaves us hanging. Mark just recalls Jesus saying to his disciples, do you still not understand? And we don't know the answer to that because we're not even sure what the question is. But maybe, maybe it's not a question of delving into deep theology. Maybe it's not a question of, of examining ourselves and kicking ourselves spiritually because of the failures that we, that we perform on a daily basis. Maybe it's just a reminder that we need to stop worrying about the detail of life about these, these trivialities that take our focus away from Jesus, these, these little selfish moments where we think, oh, I want that parking space. I don't care if it's going to cause an elderly person to have to walk a, a quarter of a mile in the pouring rain. I want that space. Maybe we have to drop that and say, I do want it, but I know it's wrong. The grace of Jesus is going to stop me from, from doing that. You see, the most humbling thing, that we can finish this sermon with today is a reminder that the son of God became a son of man so that children of men can become children of God. The grace of Jesus Christ is greater than any failing, any disappointment, any loss that we can suffer. There is nothing, nothing that even comes close to outdoing the grace that we find in Jesus. So after this sermon, enjoy your lunch, but don't focus on the one loaf and worry about where the next meal is going to come from. Because if we turn to Jesus, if we fill ourselves with his nourishing grace. Then when we're sitting in that boat, as long as he's with us, we'll be OK. No matter how long the journey, no matter what, what, what storm we go through. If Jesus is with us and if we're focused on him. In the bigger picture, we will be well. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture and we thank you, Lord, that we can spend so much time um, investigating it and considering all the different possible meanings that there might be. But Father, ultimately, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that despite the fact that we can never achieve the perfection that we would need to get into heaven, to have a relationship with you, to restore ourselves to exactly what you want us to be. Despite that fact, we thank you for the grace of Jesus who died on the cross willingly so that we can have a relationship with you. So, Father, we're all on our journey. We're all in our boat. Some of us are going through a storm right now. Some of us are going through choppy waters. Others are just sitting back and chilling out and enjoying the mill pond. But Father, whatever state we're in, please help us to keep our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts focused absolutely on you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll be praying for you as we go through another week of uncertainty, another week of lockdown. But don't forget, Jesus is with you. Keep your eyes focused on him and join us back here next week. Thank you.